Greetings and welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series. Podcast episodes are available on VHHA.com and on popular podcast hosting apps, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, and many others. Episodes of the podcast also air each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, and 8.20 a.m. across Central Virginia. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. Again, that is PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. And with that, today we're thrilled to be joined by Commissioner Allison Land with the Virginia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services for a conversation about behavioral health reform, the impact of COVID-19, and what that means for mental health care, and more. But first, welcome to the program, Commissioner Land. Thank you, Julian. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate you making some time for us. So to begin with, I mentioned that you're the commissioner of the Virginia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services, which is commonly referred to as DBHDS. If you could, um, for the benefit of listeners, what is DBHDS responsible for in terms of programs, services, and facilities across Virginia? So DBHDS operates the state psychiatric facilities. That's one piece of it. And we have 12 hospitals. They're located in the different regions, all five regions of the state. We also are the pass-through and um, oversight for the community behavioral health funding to our community services board. And then in addition to that, about 1,100 of the licensed behavioral health providers in the state also are licensed and follow the regulations of our state board. And let's chat about the COVID-19 pandemic as it relates to behavioral health care. It's been a hellish experience for so many people impacted by this virus, whether it's patients, families, or frontline caregivers. For healthcare providers, including those in behavioral health, the presence of the virus among patients who are also needing or receiving mental health care, that can be quite a sticky wicket because it's a highly transmissible disease that can spread quickly and infect potentially both staff and patients. Given that background, what insight can you share about the impact of the virus in particular as it relates to state psychiatric facilities and how that's required modification or adjustment of, of operations and functions? So all of our facilities at the beginning of the pandemic, we made some operational changes. We restricted the visitation of patients in the facility, had to do all the infection control procedures and the, you know, try to um, identify and source the PPE that would be needed for this, for the fight, put in hazard pay and bonus type wages for staff to help try to retain the staff so that we would have a willing workforce to manage our patients. It really, at first, we we were doing fantastic um, when it was we had the stay-at-home order, and so we actually saw a decrease in admissions to the state hospital during the first two two and a half months. But once we started reopening um, the community spread and our staff, then of course it started coming into our facilities. So we really saw outbreaks um, among staff and patients, which really hurt our operations. And so what we, we had to do was, of course, we could not accept positive patients because a positive patient into the facilities because we were operating at above 100% of capacity. And so one of the things that we did was work with the administration, the governor, for an executive order that would allow us to delay admissions if we were 100% full so that not, not decline admissions or not, not accept admissions, but really to just delay until we can make an suitable bed available for the patients, which meant we had to 
you know, one in, one out is kind of what I call it, because we'd have to find a safe discharge for a patient that was in a bed to be able to discharge that patient, which was also problematic because if they needed um, an assisted living facility or a group home or a long-term care facility or there were after-discharge follow-ups and services that they needed in the community that had that were not accepting admissions or referrals or had had to shut down because of the pandemic, it made it really difficult to actually discharge patients. So that increased kind of the delays, which then, of course, backed everything up into the hospital emergency department. It impacted our law enforcement just tremendously. And so we really had to work with the stakeholders and partners and are still doing that to try to make sure that we've that we're being able to move these patients through quicker um, and get them to the appropriate discharge status so that we can, you know, continue to admit. And then we also stood up a emergency operations center within the agency. We also were participating in the Commonwealth EOC as well. But we wanted to give guidance and to keep our fingers kind of on the pulse of what the CSBs were experiencing, what our licensed providers were experiencing, giving as much flexibility both within our performance contracts with the CSBs as well as working with the Department of Medical Assistance, Medicaid, to give flexibilities for using telehealth and things like that to get the the parity of the payment so that it could be financially sustainable for our providers. Just a lot of things like that because everybody's operations really were impacted by this. But what the good news is is that we have been able to continue to accept admissions. We are still running just at 100% and sometimes over, but our community services boards have really pivoted and our providers have pivoted to telehealth amazingly and have been able to you know, maintain code-mandated services. I think that everybody is still very challenged, but um, we are now getting good access to PPE, some CARES Act funding, good testing supplies. And now we've actually received vaccines into our facilities and are getting shots in the arm of those patients and staff. Well, it's interesting when you share that perspective. One of the things that, that may, it makes me think about is just how interconnected um, the systems are, how you may be in public sector health care in a state hospital or you may be in private sector health care, but these two systems naturally work together and there's overlap and there's patients transitioning from one setting to another, whether it's in a hospital setting to a state psychiatric facility or, as you said, to uh, a post-hospitalization placement, perhaps in a community-based facility. So it's just interesting, you know, how all of these components fit together like a puzzle in some ways. That's a nice segue to my next question for you, Commissioner, which is that, as we mentioned, you lead DBHDS in your current role, but you've also worked in the private sector as a hospital behavioral health leader and in the past actually have even served as past chair of the VHHA Behavioral Health Committee. And so given that you have that unique perspective, having worked both in the public and private sector in behavioral health, what are your observations on the differences between the two? And what do you see as prime opportunities for community hospitals and DBHDS to work together to improve Virginia's overall behavioral health system? So I would say it's very similar, but also very different. The funding in the state system, you know, is very involved in the in the budget, like we're just starting session now and we'll be, you know, the governor's budget has come out and it's kind of then you're stuck, if you will. We support exactly what's in that budget. But if we have something that needed to come up mid-cycle, you know, you really have to wait till that next 
budget cycle to start. And so that was something that was very different. You have to be prioritized and, and proactively assess what's going to be coming your way a little bit earlier, I would say. And then also the politics that's involved is, is very different. So I'm, I was new. This I've actually just got one year under my belt. But with the operations within the facilities, I'll say, is very similar. You know, it's putting the patient first and you know, having an interdisciplinary approach and getting a really good treatment plan in place and making sure that we get them to stabilization as soon as possible and then discharge them because these state facilities are locked facilities and you're committed to them. And so we need to, from a human rights perspective, just like in the private facilities, you need to discharge them at the appropriate time. So when they're ready for discharge, we need to get them to their next level of care. And sometimes, you know, just having the stigma of having been admitted to a state facility, I'll say, is a challenge that you don't necessarily get in a private facility, even though the populations and the diseases and the, you know, the diagnosis may be the same. And so I think that's a difference and a challenge. I also think that the way that we can work together with the private facilities is to try to I've tried, you know, to reduce some of the census pressures at the state hospital by doing contracts with some of the, the providers to help them be able to accept maybe a, a more acute or aggressive patient, if you will, or more medically complex patient. Still working and, and, and getting good headway on those types of contracts, both to divert a patient from come, having to come to a state hospital, as well as to step down so that the patient is stabilized. Maybe they could go to a crisis, you know, step down to a crisis stabilization unit, or even if we can manage them and get them a little stable, move them to a private facility in the community to finish their treatment. So then we're able to take that again more complex patient for the first part of their stay, but so that they keep those beds open and keep them moving, keep the patients moving in a safe and comprehensive um, treatment planning way. Over the last, say, 10, 12, 15 years, Virginia elected officials have invested considerable effort and energy to updating and revising a number of state laws and policies related to behavioral health, everything from involuntary commitment standards to the bed of last resort rule and the bed registry and investment in substance abuse treatment programs and some of the step-down crisis stabilization services that you mentioned, and more recently, an alternate transportation program intended to facilitate getting patients who are in mental health crisis from where they live in Virginia to a hospital with a bed that can accommodate them. Uh, Sometimes that can be a significant distance. That program is intended to both get the patient where they need to go and to help relieve the burden on law enforcement officers who might otherwise get dispatched to provide those transportation services. We're now a bit into this program. Can you tell us how it's going and what the future might hold for it? So just to add a little bit to your definition of of what the program is and what it's about and and, and why they've put it in, in addition to those aspects, really it's a dramatically different way that we treat people who are experiencing a mental health crisis. And so typically in the patient um, who had been clinically evaluated to need a temporary detention order for involuntary psychiatric treatment, they would be transported in a police vehicle to treatment at whatever facility they were they were being transported to, and they would likely be in handcuffs, which of course can be extremely traumatizing and criminalizing for the person. They're already in in a most difficult situation and a very hard time in their lives. 
alternative transportation does, of course, is not law enforcement. They will not use handcuffs. And so they're without restraint in unmarked vehicles, and they have the specially trained drivers. And so it's really a dramatically different approach and much more appropriate. And so who we contracted with is a company called G4S, and they're nationally recognized, and they contract in multiple states, and they are currently doing it across the Commonwealth, so we're fully implemented 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And so I'll say that um, actually the first ones rolled out last year for youth in Southwest Virginia, so we're also seeing for children as well, those services to roll out. And so we're hoping that all of the children, so all of the adult is rolled out, but we're hoping all of the children will be rolled out by March of this coming year. And so that will be all five regions and all ages. Well, under age 12, we'll have to wait, I think, until we have specialty child vehicles after the COVID pandemic passes. But we've done over 1,800 transports to answer that part of your question. It's still very new in some of the regions. And so the first region that launched was Region 3. And they're at approximately 30% of that region's PDOs are going with G4S now. So we're hoping to get to 50% or above. The average number of miles per trip, I think, is running around 195 miles. So you can see not only is law enforcement, if we have a delay, let's say, and get into a hospital, they're having to sit with the patient, but then they're also having to drive 195 miles potentially there and back. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine the amount of time and um, that these folks are taking out of their normal duties for public safety. We're really, you know, hoping that this is going to be an, an awesome program. Well, I appreciate uh, you sharing that perspective and providing and filling in that background and, and those updates. And with that, now that we've tackled the serious stuff, Commissioner Land, I have a few other more personal questions to give listeners a bit of a sense of who you are beyond the work that you do. The first one, and this is an entirely imaginary premise, but in the hypothetical scenario that you can anticipate your final day on Earth, what would your last meal be? My last meal? It would be something Italian pasta. And I love chicken. <laughs> so a chicken pot, some sort of Italian pasta that had chicken in it. Okay. And would that be with a, a white Alfredo be, sauce or a red sauce? A red sauce. And I like cheese, too, so lots of cheese. <laughs> okay. Sounds like a good meal. The next question is, what's the top item on your bucket list? I think that um, what I'm hopeful to do is to get a, a, a beach house down on the Gulf of Mexico to retire to. <laughs> <laughs> And my husband wants, as part of that, to have a dock with a boat lift. So that means he also gets a boat. <laughs> okay. Is he a fisherman? He likes to fish, and he likes to just, you know, ride on the boat, too. Okay. We, you know, do dolphin cruises and all of that. So okay. Take the kids out and pull them on a tube or wakeboard. Sounds good. And then <laughs> finally, if you were stranded on a deserted island, what one book, one album, and one movie would you take with you to keep yourself company? We will spot you a copy of the religious text of your choice. So other than that, Commissioner Land, what are your three entertainment survival kit picks? I don't know. I really, I've been reading um, the Stephanie Plum novels um, that Janet um, Ivanovich is, um, Stephanie Plum series. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love those books. And so every time the new one comes out, I'm, I'm all over it. So I'd want the newest one of those probably. So I guess um, some album from the Eagles. Said 
I love to sing along with that in the car, you know, so I'm sure I would on a deserted island. They have a lot of real memorable songs. They, and do have a lot of, they have a lot of hits. What's your favorite Eagles song? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I guess um, I like the, the beat in Life in the Fast Lane. Mm-hmm. Um, I like Desperado, Lion Eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like a lot of them. <laughs> So. Right, they they do have a lot of good songs. I, I've always been partial to In the City for whatever reason. <laughs> and, I like that. And then movie would be the last one. Movie. Um, Casablanca. What about us? We'll always have Paris. We didn't have. We we lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. When I said I would never leave you. And you never will. And I've got a job to do too. Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be any part of. Those I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. Now, now. He's looking at you, kid. Okay. Here's looking at you, kid. That's right. Well, listen, that is going to bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe so that you know when new episodes are available. And thanks again to our guest, the Commissioner of the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services, Commissioner Allison Land. Thank you for being with us, ma'am. Thank you for having me, Julian.